You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. told you this morning I was going to show you the reason why many Christians struggle with sin, why so much violence and anger and strife and division is in this world, why abortion is high and faithfulness in marriage is low, why the bars are filled but pews are empty. I'm going to show you why tonight. We're in the middle of Zedekiah's reign. The last king that would reign over Judah before the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. How many of you still have your paper from last week of the last five kings? Good. There's not chewed gum in it or anything. That usually goes under the chair in in church, but I hope not. Uh, Remember, Zedekiah only reigned for 11 years. So if we are in the middle of Zedekiah's reign, then we know, looking back through Scripture... And knowing history, we we know in the middle of Zedekiah's reign, we are not far from Jerusalem's final destruction. Chapters 21 through 27, what we went over last week, is all a part of a conversation between Zedekiah and Jeremiah. Uh, Zedekiah knows that Nebuchadnezzar's intention is to make war against Judah and to come up and besiege it. So uh, Zedekiah asked Jeremiah... If God is going to deliver Judah, as he always has, uh, if God is going to deliver him like he always has in the past, and Jeremiah's answer is no, that is not going to happen. For over 30 years, Jeremiah said, I have told you that this was coming, and you have not hearkened unto me. For over 30 years, I've preached to you that judgment would come unless you repented, but you refused to listen to me. Now, only now that Nebuchadnezzar is knocking at Jerusalem, Only now that the punishment is becoming real, only now that the bill is coming due, if you will, is Zedekiah starting to think that things are getting serious now. How often does that happen? By the way, Miss Desi, it's so nice to see you. We haven't introduced you. Miss Desi is here from college. We're going to try to keep her from going back. But Miss Desi, it's good to see you. No, you need to go back. You need to finish. So... Zedekiah is beginning to see the seriousness of the situation. We'll see later that he doesn't like Jeremiah's honesty, though. He doesn't like Jeremiah's truth. But even with Nebuchadnezzar breathing down their necks, even with Jeremiah and other good prophets of the time prophesying judgment, the people of Judah still seem so blind. And we have to go into these chapters with that understanding. They just seem completely oblivious. Even when Jeremiah shows them their history, Even when he shows them their history and says, think of all the times when I have told you that punishment was coming unless you repented and you never listened to me. In fact, you tried to kill me on multiple times. He says, Zedekiah, think about previous kings who were unsuccessful. Even in recent times, think of your brother Jehoahaz. He reigned for 90 days and now he's captive in Egypt and he's never coming back. Think of your other brother, Jehoiakim, who he reigned for about a decade, but he's captive in Babylon right now, and he's never coming back. Think about your nephew, Jeconiah or Kaniah or Jehoiachin. He reigned for a hundred days, 
And now he's captive in Babylon. And he has been completely cut off from the royal line because of his disobedience. Think of your father Josiah. He was successful. Why? Because he was mighty and because he was wealthy? No. Because he was obedient. And one would think that all of those obvious consequences, all the way from the days of Moses, disobedience brings cursing and obedience brings blessing. You would think that with all those consequences, Judah would learn their lesson. But it's like they're completely oblivious. Even when Jeremiah gives them the message of the potter and the clay, turn unto me right now and God can remake you as a potter can remake a vessel, a, a marred vessel of clay. And they said, there is no hope. They said, there is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices. This is God's people. What is going on in Judah? What is going on in, with God's people? They're in a mess. Now, a big contributor to this mess is a group of false prophets who are among God's people. All the way back in chapter 5, verse 31, God says, A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. And that led to the priests bearing rule by their own means. And the people loved to have it so. Everybody loved it because when the prophets are prophesying falsely and the priests are bearing rule by their own means, people can continue in sin. So they loved it. And for over 30 years, while Jeremiah is prophesying, thus saith the Lord, judgment is coming. Then the false prophets come behind him. No, 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 no. I have dreamed. And thus saith the Lord, peace, peace. Two groups of people have already been taken captive into Babylon, and the false prophets are still saying, peace, peace. Jeremiah tells Judah, submit to the yoke of Babylon. Put your necks beneath the yoke of Babylon and serve him and live. But then the false prophets come and say, very soon, all the captives who are in Babylon, they'll come back. Jeremiah says, 70 years has been determined upon Judah. 70 years in captivity. After the 70 years, then things are going to be different. The false prophets say, no, 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 very soon they're going to be coming back. We just read about that. All the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took, he's going to bring them back very, very soon. And the people did back then what people do today. They listened to what they wanted to hear. They listened to the message that scratched their ears. Now, here's a question, and my message tonight is going to be based on questions. Here's question number one. What would cause God's people to listen to lies more than they would listen to truth? Now let's take this question with us into chapter 28. This chapter starts by giving us a time. It came to pass in the same year when this conversation began with Jeremiah and Zedekiah, came to pass in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month. So at the same time that Jeremiah is telling Zedekiah, God is not going to deliver them. You are going to Babylon. Nobody's coming back. This other prophet shows up. His name is Hananiah. And Hananiah gives a prophecy of his own at the beginning of chapter 28. In the temple, in front of the people, Jeremiah's there, and it differs in every way from Jeremiah's. Jeremiah says 70 years in Babylon. Hananiah says two. Jeremiah says Jeconiah's line has been cut off from the royal line. Hananiah says Jeconiah is going to come back in two years and be king again. Jeremiah says that 
they need to submit to the yoke of Babylon. Hananiah says God is going to break the yoke of Babylon. And Jeremiah responds to Hananiah's prophecy in verse 6. Amen. The Lord do so. Wouldn't that be great? That's what I've been praying for for the past 30 years. Nevertheless, he says this, nevertheless, look in verse 7. Hear now, hear thou now this word that I speak in thine ears and in the ears of all the people. The prophets that have been before me and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries and against many kingdoms of war and of evil and of pestilence. The prophet which prophesieth of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly chosen him or that the Lord hath truly uh, sent him. So Hananiah's prophecy is so opposite of Jeremiah's and Isaiah's and Micah's. It's going to be obvious which one comes to pass. And whosoever comes to pass is going to be the one who is shown to be the true prophet. But even with this warning, Hananiah takes it up a notch. You remember back in chapter uh, 27 when God tells Jeremiah, make bonds and yokes and wear them to signify the command that God is giving to all the nations to submit and put your necks underneath the yoke of Babylon. Well, at this time, when Hananiah is giving this prophecy, Jeremiah is wearing those. He takes it up a notch, goes up to Jeremiah, takes the bonds off, takes the yokes off, and breaks the yoke. And he says, I'm sure in this dramatic voice, thus saith the Lord, even so will I break the yoke of Babylon in the space of two full years. And they all kind of leave and go their way. Now God gives Jeremiah a message for Hananiah and the people. He says in verse 13, thou hast broken the yokes of wood, but thou shalt make for them yokes of iron. Jeremiah calls out Hananiah as a false prophet prophesies that Hananiah would be dead within the year for making people believe in a lie, and within two months, Hananiah is dead. So according to what Jeremiah says, the prophet whose word comes true, that's the one you need to be listening to. Now, we came with a question into chapter 28. What would cause God's people to listen to lies more than truth? Do you think of any more questions through chapter 28? through chapter 28 now. First of all, what would cause a prophet to say, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord hadn't spoken to him? There's a question. How about what would cause a prophet to look for the attention of men instead of the instruction of God? There's a question. How about what would cause a prophet to tell people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear? Let's take these questions with us into chapter 29. Still in the middle of Zedekiah's reign, not only is Jeremiah dealing with false prophets in Judah, telling people that everything's going to be fine in a space of two years, he finds out that even among the group of exiles in Babylon, there's false prophets there, telling them the same false message. We're not going to be here very long. Let's just wait, and we'll, we'll be back soon, and we'll bring back all the vessels, and everything's going to be good. So Jeremiah writes a letter to combat these lies. He writes a letter in chapter 29 to the captives in Babylon, and he tells them the truth. He says, make yourselves comfortable because you're going to be there a while. Start building houses, get married, have kids, get a job. <laughs> like, you're going to be there for 70 years. 
He says, in fact, don't rebel against Babylon. Pray that God will bring Babylon peace. Because as long as Babylon has peace, you're going to be a beneficiary of that peace. So if you're fighting against Babylon, you're only making it harder on yourself. It's only after the 70 years that things are going to get better. Look in verse 10 and 11. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. This punishment isn't going to last forever. It's going to last for 70 years. After the 70 years, then things will be different. Verse 12, then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. I will turn away your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations." And from all the places where, uh, whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Now God is going to address these false prophets here in Babylon throughout the rest of the chapter. They're telling the captives in Babylon that they're going to return to Judah. God says, I'm telling you before long, there's not going to be a Judah to return to. The people that are here in Judah are going to be coming out to you. He calls out two specific false prophets, Ahab and Zedekiah, not King Zedekiah, but uh, uh, prophet Zedekiah. Uh, he calls them out and he foretells their death. He has three accusations against them. First of all, he says, you've committed villainy, which is decadence or immoral indulgence. He says, you committed villainy among my people. You've committed adultery with your neighbor's wives. And you have spoken a lie in my name. You're going to die because of that. He says, you're going to be roasted in the fire. In all likelihood, the same fiery furnace that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into in Babylon. They would be roasted in the fire. Throughout the rest of the chapter, 24 through 32, we see how one specific person reacted to Jeremiah's letter of make yourself comfortable and make, build houses and all those different things. His name is Shemaiah the Nehelamite. He writes his own letters in response to Jeremiah's letter back to Jerusalem. And he calls for Zephaniah the priest to put Jeremiah in the stocks and in the prison for, quote, making himself a prophet. The man whose word just came true not too long ago. Zephaniah, aren't you the priest? Aren't you supposed to be the one who calls out false prophets and puts them in prison? Why haven't you done it to Jeremiah? God prophesies that Shemaiah's rebellion is going to bring judgment upon his whole family because he is making people believe in a lie. So many questions already, but let's add some more. What would cause people to listen to prophets who are engaged in blatant immorality and adultery? What would cause a prophet like Shemaiah to hear the word of God and instead of obeying it, completely rebel against it and call for others to rebel against it? What would cause people to think that they should punish Jeremiah instead of listen to him? What would cause them to think that Jeremiah is a false prophet when his prophecies are the ones that are coming true? What would cause Judah to see the northern kingdom of Israel be taken into captivity in Assyria what would cause them to see two groups of their own people be taken to captivity in Babylon 
and yet still ignore God's warnings? What would cause that? Now, it's easy for us just to read and say, well, because they're foolish and because they're dumb. No, no. We are these people. What causes it? What would cause even those in captivity already to fail to see that they were under the punishing hand of God? We have to bring these questions with us to chapter 30. In the midst of all this talk of punishment, just chapter after chapter about sin and punishment and judgment to come, suddenly in chapter 30, like the sun breaking through storm clouds, God starts giving a message of hope. In chapter 30 and 31, which is all we're going to get through tonight, but chapter 30 and 31, suddenly this message of hope rings out. In chapter 31 through 3, God says, my people will return from captivity in Babylon. Now, they already knew this as far as they had already been prophesied this, but God starts going into detail about what that day is going to look like when they are delivered, when his people are restored. Right now, God says it's the day of punishment. In verse 7, he refers to it as the time of Jacob's trouble. He says, right now is the time of Jacob's trouble. It was so bad that men were grabbing onto their loins and screaming like they were having a baby. God asks a question in verse 6. Ask ye now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Men, why are you acting like you're pregnant? God has a sense of humor. It's like, I know you're not pregnant, but you're grabbing onto your loins and groaning like a lady who's in travail with child because that's how bad the punishment was. So gentlemen, the next time a lady says you've never felt that pain, if you've run from God, yes, you have. It's probably been even worse. So it was the time of Jacob's trouble. That was the day now and the present. But then God talks about another day. Talks about a day of deliverance, a day in the future. Now, you need to understand something whenever you're reading a prophecy. With, really, with so many prophecies, there is a partial fulfillment in the near future and then a complete fulfillment in the far future. You'll read prophecies that were partially fulfilled in Solomon, but they will be fully fulfilled one day when Jesus sets up his literal reign. Well, right now, this day of deliverance is going to be partially fulfilled in the near future for Israel, but then it's going to be fully fulfilled when Jesus comes again. Okay? For it shall come to pass in that day, the Bible says in verse 8, the bonds of their captivity would be broken. They're no longer going to serve a foreign king. They'll serve a true king like David. So don't be afraid, God says. This punishment isn't to bring destruction, but to bring instruction. It's not to wipe you out. It's to make you better. It's not to purge you away. It's to purify you into something new. Look at verse 11. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered thee, uh, scattered thee, Yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure. Praise the Lord for that. And will not leave thee altogether unpunished. You're not going to get away with it, but I'm also not going to deal with you according to what you deserve. That's God's mercy there. He goes into further detail in verse 12 through the rest of the chapter about these two different days. Remember... You have the day of Jacob's trouble, which is here in the present, and then the day of deliverance in the future. And he says this, your present trouble has come from your constant disobedience. In verse 12, he says, thy bruise is incurable, thy wound is grievous. 
all their earthly alliances of nations have fallen out from under them. None of them are helping them anymore. All of their idols have failed them. They could complain all they wanted about their punishment, but they had nobody to blame but themselves. Look in verse 15. Why criest thou for thine affliction? Thy, sour, thy, wow, thy sorrow is incurable for the multitude of thine iniquity. Because thy sins were increased, I have done these things unto thee. Here's another question. Why criest thou for thine affliction? What would cause people to cry about their punishment but not cry about the sin that brought the punishment? You ever seen people who say they're sorry but they're only sorry that, they're got caught, that they got caught? Why criest thou for thy affliction? Why would people cry because of the punishment but not the sin that brought the punishment? Let's take that question with us. But notice how that verse ends, verse 15. I have done these things unto thee. God said that. This wasn't a stroke of bad luck. This was God's hand of punishment upon his people. Whether they understood it or not, if God is the one who's doing these things, then God is still in control. And if God is the one who is punishing, then that means God still loves them because God only chastens whom he loves. Therefore, he begins in verse 16, therefore, all they that devour thee shall be devoured. Because I have done these things to you, I'm going to do these things to the nations who have risen up against you. Their present trouble came from their sin. Their future deliverance is going to come from God's unfailing love for them. Not because they have earned deliverance, but because God is going to give them grace and deliver them anyway. Because God is going to be merciful to them. And basically what he's saying in verse 16 is, if I can punish my people, certainly I can deliver my people. If I can punish the nation that's called after my name, I'm certainly going to punish the heathen nations who want nothing to do with me and have nothing to do with me. In that day, Judah would be restored through God's punishment. In that day, the people would be thankful for their punishment. Parents, you stay strong. You stay strong, parents. Your children don't understand it now why all the rules are there, and why you say no all the time. Your, your children don't like it, don't understand why you punish them, but they will come back to you one day and say, thank you. Thank you for loving me enough to punish me. He says, in that day, you're going to be thankful for this punishment. The nation would grow and multiply. Their rulers would be from their own nation, not foreign nations. Their governor, which is a clear reference to the Messiah in verse 21, their governor is going to come and show them how they can approach God in the right way. Look in verse 21. And their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them, and I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord? The days of deliverance would come through punishment. And in the latter days, he ends the chapter, in the latter days ye shall consider it. You'll see what I was doing. Chapter 31 continues God's message of hope. One day all the tribes of Israel again are going to be God's people. Not because they deserved it, but look at what he says in verse 3. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Not, not because of your own merits have I drawn thee, but because I love you. With an everlasting love, I will draw you again unto me. Think about this, church. If God loves his people enough to bless them when they're right, he must love them enough to punish them when they're wrong. 
But then he also must love them enough to draw them into himself once the punishment has accomplished its goal. And that's exactly what God is going to do. Israel would once again build and plant in Zion. He says this all throughout verse 4 through 30. You need to read it. All these things that God is going to do. As God scattered them, he would gather them again as a shepherd. Their sorrow would be removed. Their soul would be as a watered garden. Mourning would turn into joy. God's people would be satisfied. It's an incredible word and an easy word to read over. But he says, in that day, my people will be satisfied. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The people would see the foolishness of their rebellion. They're going to mourn about the wasted time of running from the Lord. But God would have mercy on them. As he watched over them to punish, he would then watch over them to build and to plant. The children wouldn't be punished for the sins of the fathers anymore. It would, everybody, would be, everybody would be held accountable for their own sin. And what God is describing in chapter 30 and 31 What God is saying is going to happen in Judah's future is so far opposite of what is happening in Judah's present. It is a drastic change, an incredible change. Their attitude towards God is going to be different, he says. Their attitude towards each other is going to be different. He says you're not going to be dishonest with each other anymore. You're not going to have a bunch of injustice among each other anymore. You're going to love one another. You're going to love me. Their attitude towards their punishment is going to change. He says, you're going to be thankful for it. Right now, you're coming at me and saying that I've forgotten you. I haven't forgotten you. I love you with an everlasting love. And in that day, you're going to be thankful for it. Fifteen times in chapter 31, God says, I will. Over and over and over, God says, I will. I will. I will. I will change my people completely. How? Do we not have even more questions now? How can such light come out of darkness? How can good come out of so much bad? How can people who have been so disobedient and so blind and so prideful for so long be changed so drastically? Such a change cannot come from without. That has to come from within. Look in verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. Grab a highlighter, grab a pencil, grab a pen, grab something, and circle those two words, new covenant, and write the words, this is big, or something. Don't miss it. This is enormous. For the Lord to say, I am going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel Israel, and with the house of Judah. Don't miss that. Whenever you read Jeremiah 31, it's enormous. One of the biggest verses in the Old Testament as far as the unfolding drama of redemption, if you would call it. You cannot miss that. Okay, Look in verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Before before Moses even came down from the mount, they had already broken it. Which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. And write it in their hearts. 
and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Priests and lawyers were there, and scribes were there, because people would come up and say, Teach me about what the Lord would have us do in this situation. Jesus says, In that day, when I write my law in people's hearts, everyone's going to know me. Everyone will know in that moment, what would the Lord do? What am I supposed to do? Lord, what am I supposed to do? He said, in that day, everyone's going to know. You will know what is right and you will know what is wrong in this new covenant. They shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God was making a new covenant with his people. They had broken the current covenant over and over and over again. He says, I've been a husband to you, and you have been like an adulterous woman to me. You go out and you commit adultery with all these idols, and then you come back to my house and think everything's going to be fine. No, I'm not going to divorce you because I love you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make some new vows. I'm going to make a new covenant here. They had proven themselves to be completely unable to follow the covenant that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. Let's think about our Through the Bible series. Think about the best of men in Israel's history. Moses. Even the best of men in Israel's past. Moses, Aaron, David, Solomon, Asa, Hezekiah, Josiah. Had all failed to keep the covenant in one way or another. Every single one. And when you're guilty of one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. Even the best of them failed. Some of them failed miserably. This new covenant was going to be eternal, God said. Only if the sun stopped shining and the moon and the stars fell and the ocean jumped its banks, said those things would need to happen before this covenant is broken. He said, it will be easier to measure the heavens and it will be easier to explore the center of the earth, the depths of the earth, than it will be to break this covenant. And that's why they could be so sure that God's deliverance and his salvation was going to come to pass. Now, how could this covenant be so permanent? Where could it find its eternality? Because this new covenant wasn't going to be written on tables of stone. It was going to be written on the very hearts of his people. And right there, church, right there is the answer to all the questions that we have asked up to this point. What would cause a prophet to say, thus saith the Lord, when he hadn't spoken to him? What would cause a prophet to look for the attention of men more than the instruction of God? What would cause a prophet to tell people what they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear? What would cause people to listen to prophets who are in blatant immorality and adultery? What would cause people to want to kill Jeremiah rather than listen to him? What would cause them to think Jeremiah is a false prophet? What would cause them to ignore God's warnings even after God's hand was so evident? Why are they not listening to God? Why is there so much pride in the land? Why is there so much immorality and adultery, uh, adultery and idolatry? God says, all of that has come because your heart is wrong. So God said, I'm going to change the hearts of my people. And when their hearts are changed, they won't only know that they're supposed to serve me. They will want to serve me. 
Think about that. The people in the Old Testament knew we're supposed to sacrifice and we're supposed to have offerings and we're supposed to live holy lives because we're, uh, God wants us to be a kingdom of priests. God wants us to be a holy nation. They knew that, but they had no desire. They had no desire to do it. God says, when I change your hearts, that knowledge of what you're supposed to do is still going to be there. But now you're going to have a desire to do it. Do you want your children, parents, just to do what you say because you want a mindless robot? No, at the end of the day, you're a child, I'm an adult. Do what I tell you. But we hope that our relationship would grow past that. And if somebody were to come and say, why are you cleaning your room? Because my dad told me. Oh, how about because I love my dad? How about because I don't want to disappoint him? God said, I'm going to write it on their heart. When their hearts are changed, obedience isn't just going to come because of, their, because of fear of punishment. It's going to come because they truly love me. Fear of punishment keeps a lot of people from doing what's wrong. But it's love. It's love for God that makes people do what's right. And both are needed to be a disciple. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Plenty of people say, I'm not going to do what's wrong because I know what God would do to me if I did. But they have no love to go further than that and say, Lord, I'm going to do this for you because I love you. Their heart was the problem. Therefore, only by changing their hearts could they bring a solution. Everyone crack your knuckles, get ready, turn to Jeremiah chapter 3, and keep up with me if you can. I want to show you this. Their heart was the problem. So their heart had to be changed. If their heart wasn't part of the change, it, there was no solution. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 10. Their fake repentance under Josiah was a heart problem. Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart. Every time we get to that word, would you say it with me? Jude, Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignly saith the Lord. Their great wickedness was a heart problem. Look in chapter 4, verse 18. This is thy wickedness, because it is bitter, because it reacheth unto thine heart. Their disrespect for God was a heart problem. Look in chapter 5, verse 23. This people hath a revolting and rebellious heart. Their backsliding against God was a heart problem. Look in chapter 7, verse 24. They hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Their injustice and dishonesty toward their neighbors was a heart problem. Look in chapter 9, verse 8. Their tongue is an arrow shot out, it speaketh deceit. One speaketh peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in heart he layeth his weight. Their, their idolatry was a heart problem. Look in verse 13 of chapter 9. They have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked therein, but have walked after the imagination of their own heart and after Balaam. Their unity with the heathen nations was a heart problem problem. Look at verse 26. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness, 
All these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Their rebellion since the days of Egypt was a heart problem. Look in chapter 11, verse 8. They obeyed not nor inclined their ear, but walked everyone in the imagination of their evil heart. Their land was destroyed because of a heart problem. Look at 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 11. They have made it desolate, and being desolate, it mourneth unto me. The whole land is made desolate because no man layeth it to heart. Their pride was a heart problem. Look in chapter 13, verse 9 and 10. Thus saith the Lord, after this manner, will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart. Their false prophets had a heart problem. Look in chapter 14, verse 14. Then said the Lord unto them, I'm sorry, then the Lord said unto me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. Judah's sin was deeply seated in their heart. Look in chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart heart. Their trust in man over God was a heart problem. Look in verse 5 of chapter 17. Thus saith the Lord, cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm and whose heart departeth from the Lord. All of their sin was a heart problem because Jeremiah 17 8 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Chapter 17, verse 10, says, I, the Lord, search the heart. He saw that it was the heart of man that was the problem. He saw sin graven upon the heart of his people, so he said, one day everything's going to be different. Light is going to come instead of darkness. Joy is going to come instead of mourning because I'm going to remove the sin that is graven upon their heart and I'm going to engrave my law on it instead. Not because the people deserved it, but because of my mercy. I will remember their sin no more so they can remember my love forevermore. I'm going to address the heart of the problem and the heart of the problem is always a heart problem. It says I'm going to change their hearts and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with your whole heart. What do a group of Hebrews back in Jeremiah's day, have in common with people living in the 21st century? What do people of Heritage Baptist Church have in common with the people in Jeremiah's day? Why do the problems of lust and violence and pride and hatred and strife and division pervade our society as it has since the fall of man? Why? Because all of us have a heart that is desperately wicked and deceitful. The heart is why moms will abort their own children. The heart is why people will murder somebody else in cold blood. The heart is why people will commit adultery. 
The heart is why we worship things before God. The heart is why we are prideful. The heart is why we don't have separation from the world. The heart is why we listen to temptation and not God. The heart is why we gossip. The heart is why we have authority problems. Every problem in this world stems from the wickedness of man's heart. And how many people have heard God tell them, repent and I can make you new. I can remake you like a potter can remake a marred vessel of clay. But like those people of old, the people say today, there's no hope. But we will walk after our own devices and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. It doesn't have to be that way. Unlike these people back then, we don't have to wait for the day to come when God would write his law upon our hearts. The day's come. Jesus came. Jesus came down. Just as we look back to Jesus in faith, those people looked forward to him in faith. But Jesus came, and he died. He lived a sinless life, although he could have called 12 legions of angels. Although he could have refused to drink that bitter cup of Calvary. He said, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the, cover, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So he went to the cross for you and me because he loves you and me. He lived a sinless life because he loves you and me. He suffered for you and me because he loves you and me. He died for you and me because he loves you and me. He was buried, but he rose again for you and me because he loves you and me. He ascended up into heaven because he loves you and me. He did all of that so he could send the Holy Spirit to you and me because he loves you and me. And when you're saved, Romans 5.5 5 says this, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. When somebody is born again, they're made a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Salvation is not an outward thing. It is an inward change. Salvation changes the hearts of men. If you are living this life and your heart has never been changed, it's not because God hasn't come to you. It's because you haven't come to God. If you are living this life with a changed heart, it's not because of anything you've done, but because God's love has been shed abroad in your heart by Jesus Christ. It's when we saw the love of Christ. It's when we asked him to save us from our sin. It's when we believed on him in faith that God took our deceitful and desperately wicked heart and wrote his law within it. Not the law of Moses that only shows us our sin, but the law of faith that shows us our Savior. Not the law, not the law uh, of works that no man is able to bear, but the law of love, whereon you can hang all the law and the prophets. When you are saved, God changes you. Because if we cannot be changed, we can't serve him the way we're supposed to. We can't love him the way we're supposed to. It wasn't until we saw the greater love that no man had than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. It was only when Jesus came that we saw love, how it was supposed to be. The heart of man 
is always contrary to the law of God. Always. That's why the heart must be changed. And God changes us by addressing the heart problem. Think about it. When God's law says this is right, our heart says no. And when God's law says this is wrong, our heart says yes. And that's why God, who searches the hearts, calls for us to be saved. Listen, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. The heart needs to be changed. It is changed at salvation. God's law is written within. Here's the problem. Even after we're saved, we can still follow that old heart if we want to. We are flesh. And Romans talks about all of creation groans, waiting for the redemption of our body. Our soul has been redeemed, but Lord, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That which I would, I do not. Not what I would allow not. That's what I do. No, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. <laughs> I'm so tired of the sin. Did our Jesus have to die on the cross so we could continue in our sin? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Lord, I'm so sick of sin. I'm so sick of this heart. We are flesh, and we will be until God calls us home. But we are flesh with the Spirit of God indwelling our hearts. We should be different. Those Israelites were punished because they followed their hearts away from God. How much more will we be held accountable for grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit of God that has written his law within our hearts. They didn't have that back then. We do. How much more will we be held accountable? God help us. We've become professionals at ignoring the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts. We're not saved so we can keep following our own hearts. We're saved so we can follow the one who dwells within our hearts. Look back through Scripture. Look back through your own past. Look at your own friends and family. Look through your own life. Show me one person who has found the blessings of God by following their desperately wicked and deceitful heart. Look back in your past at all the times where you are away from God. Show me a time in your life when you are away from God, and I will show you a time when you are following your desperately wicked and deceitful heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And in 1 John 3 says... If our heart condemn us, the same heart that tells us, come on, just do it, doesn't matter. As soon as we do it, that same heart says, you did it, and you should be ashamed of yourself. You know how many young, it's like telling, it's like telling a, your younger brother, go play in the street. And then when he gets in trouble for playing in the street, that's like then going back to your younger brother and saying, that was a stupid thing to do. That's exactly what your heart does to you. Your heart says, this is a good idea. 
the Holy Spirit says that's against my law. That's against God's law. If you loved God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, you wouldn't do that. The Holy Spirit guides us in all truth, but the heart says, no, 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 just, just, it'll be fine. And then as soon as you do it, that same heart that told you to do it turns on you and says, ha, you did it, didn't you? And we say, I need to come back to God, and our heart condemns us. You can't come back to God. You're the one who ran. He won't take you back. Our heart is the problem. No wonder we're so prone to stray. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. No wonder we're so often disobedient. No wonder we're so often in sin. It's our heart. It's not our hand that goes and tries to lead us somewhere. It's our very center, our very core, our, the very inmost part of our being. That is the problem, and that's why we need him daily. That's why we must hide his word in our hearts. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. When Jeremiah came to a point when he wanted to turn his back on God and turn his back on everything that he was taught, he said, I can't because his word is in my heart. How's your heart tonight? Are you grieving the Holy Spirit? Are we ignoring his leading and following our heart instead? The heart that led us to sin in the first place? Jesus said, come follow me. Follow me. It may be today that he comes again. May our hearts be right with him. They can be. They can be. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're going to deal with your heart every day for the rest of your life until Jesus calls us home. And that's why even so come Lord Jesus. But until that time, you also have his law in your heart. You should also strive to hide his word in your heart. Your heart is going to scream at you and tell you to turn left. The Holy Spirit will come and whisper and say, go right. And you can hear him if you'll listen. You can hear him if you listen. Your heart can be right with him. Why did Jesus die? So that men could be made right with God. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.